We have two scripture passages this morning. The first is Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, a very familiar passage to many of you, I'm sure. And if you'd like to uh, get your Bibles out and read along with me, or uh, pull it up on your device or computer screen, whatever, uh, whatever way is most accessible to you, uh, read along with me. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, die the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man... Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase pain, your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said... Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. That's the first scripture passage, the Old Testament scripture this morning. Our New Testament scripture passage is John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? 
Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? Let's follow the reading of God's holy word. May he bless you to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enlighten this word to us this morning by your Holy Spirit, that we may see in it how great and wonderful a Savior we have who has redeemed us from the tyranny of the devil. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now you might be wondering, why is it that I chose to read Genesis chapter 3 from the Old Testament this morning in correlation or relation to uh, Jesus' betrayal and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but knowing that God himself has written his word, I don't think these things are coincidences, that there is a correlation between uh, the Garden of the First Adam, where he failed to obey God and to pursue righteousness, and fell into sin and sent this whole world into the chaos of this curse. And the Garden of Gethsemane, where the second Adam was faithful, obedient, and diligent, and did not fall into temptation, but gave himself over for us. Verse 1 of uh, John chapter 18 is significant. He said, it says here, when he had finished, Jesus left with his disciples, across the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was an olive grove. Uh, the word olive grove there, it's the same word for garden. And he and his disciples went into it. And we don't have all the details of the Garden of Gethsemane in John's Gospel. John is taking a particular angle, but if you know the other Gospel stories, Gospel accounts, there is a significant amount of more detail that cues us in on what's happening here in the Garden. Uh, first thing you need to know is Gethsemane means oil press. And so there is a trying, a tempting going on here in the garden. And if you read the account that's given by Luke, we read there that Christ, in the account given by Matthew, is praying to his father and asking if there's any way that this, this cup can pass from him. May it be so, but not my will, Father, but yours be done. And while this is going on, Christ is praying deeply and concerned. He's diligent. He's, he's fervent. He's alert. He's on watch. But the disciples, they're asleep. And he goes out to them and he says, you need to be alert that you may not fall into temptation. The, 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 the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. So there's a, a crushing going on, an oppressing going on. There's a trying going on here of Christ, the second Adam. Much like the temptation that happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 for our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is 
Christ's garden moment. The second Adam's garden moment. And as we're reading this, we should be considering that if this is the case, we're watching, anticipating, we're on the edge of our seat because we're wondering if all that was undone by the first Adam is going to be made right by the second Adam. We are in the midst of our sin, of the curse that we are experiencing because of the fall of mankind, and we are helpless. Each and every one of us to make right what's been wronged. We need someone else to do it for us. We need someone else to be faithful, to not fall to temptation, to redeem us from the tyranny of the devil. And that's our theme this morning. Christ overcomes the devil by being obedient unto death. Our catechism tells us that we are not our own, but belong, body and life, our body and soul, death and then life, to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from the tyranny, the rule of the devil. And that's a, a particular reality, a biblical reality, that we often don't focus on much. We don't consider, we don't see. But that's what's being presented to us here, and I hope that I can show that to you. And the first point we're going to be looking at is the sinister serpent, in verses 2 and 3. The second point is the sovereign surrender, verses 4 through 9. The last point, the saving submission, verse 10 through 11. So maybe you're asking, where is the devil present? Where is that devil present in this passage that we're looking at, John chapter 18, verse 1 through 11? Um, we're told in verse 1 that Christ has gone into this garden. He's gone into this testing moment. Luke even says that Christ was under so much tremendous pressure that he was sweating blood, droplets of blood. And in verse 2 we read, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And in verse 3 it says, Judas came, and again the word there is, to the garden. Came to the garden. Now, it's significant that we realize that earlier in John's gospel, John chapter 13, when, uh, John chapter 13 or John chapter 12, when Christ is eating with his disciples and they are revealing the betrayal, John chapter 13 is correct, right? Um, Christ is saying, I'm going to be betrayed. And they ask, who is it? And in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. In verse 27 of chapter 13 in John's gospel, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. What you're about to do, do quickly. Jesus told him. So, we've been told that Judas in this story has become the vessel of the wills and the wiles of Satan. Satan entered Judas. And so we read here that when Judas entered the garden, we can see it as the serpent who entered the garden in Genesis chapter 3 to deceive our first parents. 
Judas has come to betray Jesus, to put him into the hands of those who want him dead. And the thing that we need to understand here is that the the devil, Satan, thinks this is the way he's going to defeat the Son of God, who's going to end the plan of the Son of God. Judas comes to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so the sinister serpent in the disguise of Judas Iscariot enters the garden, approaches the second Adam, and offers temptation. What path are you going to take? What is the path that you are going to take Jesus. And we know because he is Jesus and because he does the will of God the Father that the path he is going to choose is the one that he's called to. We have no doubt about that. He is the second Adam, the faithful. He is the one who does not fall to temptation. He is the one who does perfectly the law of God on our behalf. But this picture here, it presents us with something we should consider, does it not? Presents us with the reality that sometimes when things look bad, that's exactly how God has ordained to work in our lives. I mean, there it is. This is the moment when Judas, his friend, comes to Jesus and betrays him. And behind the scenes in the spiritual world, the devil is thinking this is the time that he's going to have the victory. He's going to be able to defeat the Son of God. And that's exactly where Christ is supposed to be. I said at the beginning of the service that we have a providential God, that all things come to us, good and bad, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And I need to be asking you that as we look at this picture of Jesus, all things look bad. All things look as if failure is happening. But actually, this is victory. Victory over the devil. How are we facing our current circumstances? In a way that sees them not as failure. In a way that sees them not as times are getting dark. There's nothing to be hopeful about. But how are we seeing these times, these times that have come upon us, not by chance, by God's fatherly hand. And if it is not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand, and that all things that happen to us, good and bad, must work together for our salvation, how? How are we? How are we growing? 
in these days? How are we learning what it means to depend upon God even more than we did before? When going to the grocery store looks more like a war zone now than simply a normal Tuesday. How are we facing the times that we are dealing with when the only way that we can see loved ones is through screens or FaceTime? When we have little daughters who are sad because they realize that going to church today is not like going to church normally. Friends aren't here. Other people aren't going to be here. When the only hug that you can get is a make-believe hug through an iPhone FaceTime screen. When times are difficult because going to the grocery store now and shopping for a family of six makes you look like a hoarder. When really it's just a normal week. How are you facing these times when COVID-19 makes it so that you can't visit your spouse or your father or your mother in the nursing home? You can't be with them when they're sick and they're ill and they're dying. Are we going to look at these times and are we going to say, this is what losing looks like? Or are we going to look at these times and say, this is what victory looks like? It's a bit of a change from perspective, isn't it? Here's Christ, the second Adam. He's in his garden moment. He's faced with the sinister serpent who desires to take him down, to cut off his role, to cut off his mission to save the people of God and to cleanse them from their sins and to redeem them from the tyranny that he, the devil, has put upon them. Judas comes to him, to the garden. With him, soldiers, officials, chief priests, Pharisees, torches, lanterns, weapons. What is Christ going to do? Let's look at that second point, the sovereign surrender. Verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. Knowing all that was going to happen to him. That's why this is a sovereign surrender. Christ is not surprised by the kiss of his friend who betrays him. Christ is not surprised by this mad mob with torches and pitchforks coming into the garden to grab him in the middle of the night fearful of the other people. Christ, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? He is facing this head on. He has got his eyes, his gaze, his mission set on his destination, the cross. The cross. Who is it you want? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says these words, I am he. I am he. 
In the Greek, that is the word ego eimi. We talk a lot about the I am's of John's gospel. And here is another one. It's the same word used for the divine name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, in the Greek language. He says, ego eimi, I am. And when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine this picture, this scene? That there is so much power in Christ's proclamation of his identity. I am. Ego a me. I am. I'm God. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I'm God. I am he. And when he said this, the glory that was exposed for simply a moment, a flash, made that crazy mob with pitchforks and torches fall back and fall to the ground. Why is this called a sovereign surrender? Because at any moment Jesus could call the hosts of angel armies down upon these people who are seeking his arrest and his crucifixion and ended the whole thing. He has the power. He has the authority. He is God. And so you think that what is happening to him in this picture is a helpless man who is being strung along and carried along and has no ability to stop it, has no ability to keep what's going to happen from happening? No. Every step he takes, every moment he takes is of his own will and volition. He is doing this. No one is making him. It's a sovereign surrender. The power, the authority, never transfers to another. He is God. Christ Jesus, the God-man, he is diligently taking every step. Towards his own death. Because although the devil might think that's how he wins, that's how he loses. Christ overcomes the devil by being obedient unto death. In Colossians, we're told that in the cross, Christ openly mocked. Principalities, the powers, the spirits of the kingdom of Satan. Christ is God. He says, I am He. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, He asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am He, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words He had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those. You gave me. This is what Christ said back in John chapter 6. And this is uh, being applied to the disciples, his disciples. It can be extrapolated out to the rest of us. Um, but here it's being applied to his disciples. What I want you to see here in this sovereign surrender of Christ is that he knows 
That the one who is to be taken, the one who is to receive the punishment, the one who is to receive this treatment is not the disciples, although they are the ones who deserve it. This is the innocent one being arrested. What is being explained, exposed, shown to us here in this text is that Christ is our substitute. Just take me, he says. Take me. If you're looking for me, take me. Let these men go. And the reality is, is that if any of us, any one of us, would have been among the number of the disciples that night, he would have said the same thing. He said, let these men go, take me. Let these men go, take me. And on that final day, when we stand before the Lamb who was slain in in heaven, when COVID-19 will no longer keep us from assembling together, there'll be no disease, there'll be no There'll be no sin, there'll be no sickness. The words, I have not lost one of those you gave me, will still be just as true. We'll all be there. Every single one whom Christ has died for. Christ, here in this picture, is overcoming the devil by being obedient unto death. He's the second Adam. This is his garden moment. And here in this point, the sovereign surrender, we're seeing, we're seeing Christ do what Adam could not do. He is being obedient to the Father. He's being obedient unto death for our sake. A final point, the saving submission. We see this occurrence, this act happen in the other Gospels as well. Simon Peter had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The, na- the servant's name was Malchus. And if you look at the correlation between uh, Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden, and, and this story about Simon Peter with the sword, there's some interesting uh, parallels, some interesting correlations being made here. Uh, the first is that we're told that Adam's duty in the garden was to guard it and to keep it. Now, many maybe don't realize what's being said here, but what's being said here is that Adam was to be on guard against any enemy that could come into the garden. That's why he failed, because Satan came into the garden, snuck up on his wife, and whispered lies in her ears. Adam was to keep and guard the garden. And here, here in this story, in Jesus' garden moment, Simon Peter is guarding the garden with a sword. He's not going to let his Savior be taken. He's not going to let his Savior be arrested. This is the Messiah This is the one who is to be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. 
So Peter, he pulls out his sword. And you, you, don't, you don't think any of us would have done the same thing? This is our friend. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ, the anointed one. They can't arrest him. And he cuts off the right ear of Malchus. But in verse 11, Jesus stops this. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter, put your sword away. You see, in this garden, the swords are put away. Because the obedient thing to do is not to guard or keep out the evil that's already invaded in the world. But it's to be obedient. To walk the path of the cross. That's the new way that we attack that's the new way that we go on the offense against sin, Satan, the world, the devil, the flesh. We can't keep it out, it's already in. What we can do submit to the way of the cross. What we can do is look outside of us to Jesus who has taken away our sin. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me, Christ said. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. This is the saving submission. Christ does not need rescuing in this moment. Christ is exactly where he's meant to be. Christ is submitting himself to the will of the Father in order to save us. The cup he's talking about, drinking the cup the Father has given him, is the cup of God's wrath. And Christ must drink it all. Every last drop. wrath of God against sin, our sin, my sin. What Peter's doing here is trying to rescue Christ from the very thing that Christ needs to do in order to rescue Peter. Us. This is a submission that leads unto salvation. This is the second Adam being obedient in his garden moment, not giving way to temptation, the temptation for Christ is to find another way to bring salvation and to free us from the tyranny of the devil, a way that is not to the cross. But Christ must and he will be obedient unto death on the cross. Be obedient to his Father's will. Be obedient to the path of the cross. 
for our sake. And so the very thing that the devil thinks will be the crushing blow to his schemes and his plans becomes the very crushing blow to the serpent's own head. The death of Christ is the death of our sin. The resurrection of Christ is our resurrection. Christ submits himself for our salvation to drink the cup of the wrath of God, his Father, against the sin of mankind. And in this, Christ shows us what the way of the cross looks like. It means that the Christian life is definitely not about always choosing the easiest thing. In fact, it's not about that at all. The way of the cross means The life God has called us to in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is a life of sacrifice. It's a life of giving up our priorities, our desires, for the sake of others. It's the life of viewing others more important than ourselves. It's a life submission. Submitting to the will of our Father as Christ did. And we can do this because Christ has overcome the devil by being obedient unto death. I hope you see that the second Adam's garden moment is a triumphant garden moment. It's not a Genesis 3 moment. It's a new heavens and new earth moment. It's a revelation of a new creation, a renewed creation. It is Christ, the second Adam, being obedient, not falling into temptation, being diligent and alert, and pursuing the will of God, his Father, for his life, which is his death on the cross for our sake. Christ, the second Adam's garden moment, is the moment in which we see the serpent's head crushed. Because Christ went to the cross. And because the tyranny of the devil has been lifted from our lives, we now live as people. Who are called. Who are called. To grow. In the likeness. And in conformity. To Jesus Christ our Lord. Putting to death the world. The flesh. The devil in our own lives. Surrendering. 
Surrendering where we are still holding on. Where we have not given up to God. Fully. Wholly. Wholeheartedly. And submitting. Submitting to the life of the cross. And it's by this. It's by this that we show that we are people who live not under the tyranny of the devil, but the rule and reign of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the second Adam who overcame the serpent. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word this morning. We ask your blessing upon it. We thank you for a Savior who was faithful in his garden moment that he may free us from the tyranny of the devil. That he was not crushed in the oil press, but rather was obedient unto you and crushed by you on the cross for our sake. May we live as people who are not under the tyranny of the devil, but under the rule and reign of our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. May we, by your Spirit, overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Be freed from every temptation and not be overcome by them. May we surrender every part of our lives May we submit to live a life of the cross, sacrificing for others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.